We are sponsored by Raise Energy, powered by the enhanced refresh technology. Raise Energy delivers with a performance-enhancing energy drink that aids in the most often overlooked categories. Raise Energy targets focus, enhances your recovery time, improves clean energy levels, and boosts your stamina and hydration. Most importantly, each single can of Raise Energy has absolutely zero calories, zero sugar, and zero carbohydrates, which that gives you a smarter and more healthier option. You should not have to settle for an energy drink that contains more sugar and carbs than you can count. Opt for the number one fan-voted energy drink on the market today with Raise Energy. If you want to get yourself a can of Raise Energy, go to repsports.com, R-E-P-P, sports.com. Use my promo code HPP1000, HPP1000 at checkout, and you will receive a generous discount. podcast i'm your host as always dylan hodge but you guys already know that i'm on instagram and i'm on twitter at i am mr dylan hodge if you like the podcast what are you doing what are you waiting for give us a five-star review on apple podcast and on spotify help us raise us up in the charts and 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 make us a bigger and more legit and better podcast than what we already are um you know i get asked a lot on emails kind of what my daily like routine is doing a podcast and you know i will give you kind of like okay let's say i have one podcast let's say i record the podcast let's just say a wednesday right so wednesday i'll record the podcast thursday i will go in i will listen i will uh i have this little system that jots down kind of whenever i hit a button and everything will jot down what i like if it's mentioned, uh, if we talk about Iron Man, then if I want to say that we talked about Iron Man, just give me some headliner notes. I will tap that button and Iron Man will pop up on my screen. The word Iron Man will pop up on my screen. And I can just hit control the entire time that I want to listen to something. So sometimes I'm listening for an hour straight. Sometimes I'm having to go back and listen to uh, the hour a couple of two or three times just to make sure I got everything, all of the right points um jot it down so i know also on thursday i will take notes of what needs to be edited so i will f- on on my editing system i will flag like a from let's just say a minute 35 seconds to a minute 42 i will flag that entire section and i know i will go in on friday when i go in and edit the podcast friday i will go in and i will edit that entire podcast uh all the flags i will take out or i will um like so so if i need to outline something like if uh somebody's microphone goes out or it just needs to be like a louder quality audio then that flag i will flag it blue the other one will be flagged yellow if it needs to be edited out so on and so forth i have the no- the, the the 
the colors of the flags in the system kind of memorized so I know what red does, I know what yellow does, I know what green, blue, etc., etc. On Saturday, now we're at Saturday, sometime during the day, I don't, Saturdays and Sundays, I kind of just, if I have a podcast Saturday, cool, I usually go uh, yard sales, garage sales, that type of thing on Saturdays. Uh, but usually on Saturdays, I will get up. And I will record the introduction, what you're hearing. I will record all of this. And then on Sunday, I will go in and I will use sometimes this is Saturday night. Sometimes if I know my Sunday is going to be busy or anything like that, this is just a normal non-hectic week. So um, Sundays, if if it, let's, just, let's just be playing so Sunday. I will go in and I will edit out those marked, uh, th- those flagged timestamps of the podcast. I will then transfer that saved edited audio over to the introductions and all of that. I will then put in the theme song. I will do all of that on Sunday. Uh, sometimes Saturday night, mostly Sunday around. I'm usually done around 10 a.m. I will. Because the editing process is so quick because I'm already so caught up and I've already had it flagged or you know exactly what I want out, exactly what I want to do. It's already done, so my editing process doesn't take that long. But straight, it's just audio. It's not video. I'm not doing any of that at the moment. Um, so the audio is pretty straightforward, quick, quick. I'm going to do in and out in 20 minutes. Uh, I will then put that with the podcast, the episode. I will then upload it to the podcast uh, the the World Wide Web, and I will release it for Monday. Um, I will type out all my notes that I need to have uh, written into the episode notes of the podcast, and we're done for another week. Now, this will also be, like, if I have a podcast every day of the week, which I've done before, I don't do that uh, anymore, really. I, I kind of do two or three a week, maybe, sometimes one. I just just I've tried to come back for a while, um, but I I will if if there's a a podcast every day then obviously it's gonna have to be work around that podcast. That's why usually podcasts are either uh, mid morning or uh, later at night. So like sometimes I'll record we'll we'll set at nine o'clock or a ten or eleven. Uh, I usually don't do between lunch time and three. I usually don't do those just because that's my time to kind of just chill, write my journal for a little bit, um, those types of things, get other stuff done that I need to be done, run some errands between 12 and 3 if I do have a podcast. And then from around 7 at night, I, I like recorded around 6 or 7. That means I've already, I've already ate my dinner. I've already kind of winding down for the night. So it's kind of a perfect podcast scenario around the seven eight o'clock at night we're done within an hour hour and a half on a good day two hours and after that i kind of i save everything i upload my audio to my um editing system and it buffers and it generates the audio for uh usually I, i leave it overnight to do it and then i refresh it the next morning and we're good to go we're doing the same thing the next day um so that's kind of how the podcast goes on the daily um but next week guys 
Next Monday is Halloween. That's the Halloween episode of the podcast. I'm so excited. We didn't really do one last year. Um, and we did one the year before and the year before that, I believe. And they were so much fun. Man, they're so much fun. Because we, I mean, I recorded this a month and a half ago. So we were in the spooky season in September, uh, early September. So I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to hear next week's Halloween episode. But I'm also very excited for you guys to hear this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, today we've got military expert and historian Matthew Reed on the show. He is chatting about so much different things, guys. He's talking about Russian intelligence services, human intelligence operations, being a military interrogator and kind of what that, how that differs to Russia's interrogation system, uh, what spies are like in real life versus the spies that you see in movies and TV shows and films, James Bond, etc. The most accurate military film and or films, and if there could ever be a World War III, and if so, what could start it and what would we do as a country? This is... An episode that I thought we were going to talk. I I go into different podcasts feeling different ways. And I thought this podcast was going to be very interesting. But didn't realize it was going to be as interesting as it was. As it turned out to be. So this is an unedited podcast. Um, I didn't take anything out uh, out of the actual recording. Everything as good as it gets because Matthew Reed is that he is that authentic and that professional when it comes to podcasting. So here we go right now, episode four hundred and ninety-seven of the Hodgepodge Podcast. Matthew Reed, interrogator, expert, operator, spy, right here on the Hodgepodge Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for uh, th- thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Pleasure's all mine, I assure you. So, as we as we kind of jump into the podcast, kind of uh, exp- uh, explain what you do. You know, give a little background on yourself and, and just kind of the situation we're in here doing the podcast for. Sure. So I'll tell you a little summation about my life. So, uh, long story short. 2003, I graduated from the University of St. Thomas in Houston with a uh, degree in history. And immediately afterwards, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. I did four years in the Marine Corps. I got out. I was in civilian life for a little while. I actually worked as a doorman at a couple of strip clubs in Houston. That job was pretty crazy. And then I went back into the military, except this time I went into the Army, where I went into U.S. military intelligence and I became an interrogator and a Category 2 human intelligence source handler. Did a couple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and I, my Iraq deployment, I was an interrogator. I actually interrogated one of the uh, top insurgent leaders in the Yala province, Iraq, at one point in time. And when I deployed to Afghanistan in 2011, I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the human intelligence shop for the 1st Striker Brigade, 25th Infantry Division. 
I got out of the army in early 2012, it was about March, 2012. And I went back over to Afghanistan working as a contractor for the department of defense for a number of years, working for different uh, private defense firms, mission essential personnel, CACI, CACI, SOCI, 6-3 systems. Now, I was in Afghanistan as a contractor for about an additional five years. Uh, my last two years in, I worked on a strategic intelligence uh, clandestine platform, which I can't really say much about. Much of what we did was highly, highly classified. And then I left Afghanistan near the end of 2015. And I went to work in Southeastern Europe as a counterintelligence analyst for U.S. Army Europe. Uh, my job there was to root out double agents that certain hostile intelligence services had placed in our human intelligence operations while, excuse me, while also making sure that these same intelligence services did not penetrate any of our existing operations. Did well doing that for about six years, got a few scalps on my belt. And then my position was recently cut, but I managed to write uh, six different books. Some were novels, some were novellas. I'm also marketing those now. But I'm back in the States now, sort of doing that, taking it easy, uh, trying to get on a number of podcasts just to try to give not just a historian's perspective on things, but also an intelligence analyst perspective on things that'll allow me to explain to people you know, more what's going on behind the scenes, the history behind it, why the intelligence community does what it does, why it looks at certain things the way it does. And eventually I'll be going back to work in the intelligence business. But for the meantime, I'm here to, uh, yeah, obviously work on marketing my books, but also go on podcasts and discuss various issues. Man. Uh, that's a lot to unload here. So I got a, a couple of things that, that you mentioned here, and I want to kind of get a sure. little bit more of a background on. So <clears throat> you mentioned you were an interrogator. So kind of what, what were the duties of that? What did that involve being an interrogator? So when people hear interrogator, the first thing they sometimes think about is stuff like waterboarding or ripping some guy's fingernails out. And that's for people on the conventional military side, it's just not the case. So my job as an interrogator when I was in Diyala province in 2009 was to sit down with insurgents or insurgent leaders, HVIs, high-value individuals, insurgent leaders we caught that we thought had a lot of knowledge about how these different networks were working, how the IEDs were being brought in, uh, which insurgent group was working with al-Qaeda in Syria, which was working with Iran, that sort of thing. My job was to basically sit down with them and do everything I could to extract information from them, get them to willingly talk to us and give certain pieces of information up that would allow us to target those networks and kinetic operations or do things like ascertain where IEDs were, where IEDs were coming from to basically save American lives. And those are the, those are the two general areas that what I did was focused on. Okay, so this is going to sound maybe a little childish or dumb when I say this, because I'm going to this completely blind. I know nothing about any of the insides of military, except for the books that I've read. But when you're sitting down with these leaders and you're, you know, you're saying, Hey, let's come to a compromise. Let's do this. Let's do that. Is there any type of fear going on inside of your head at the, at the time of your just interrogating these, these leaders that are probably more powerful than anybody you could ever imagine? 
Well, I was never really afraid of those guys. One, I had in my own prison facility. If they got out of line and did anything stupid, and I had an MP that would just, you know, split their head if they got out of line to try to kill me or anything. But uh, these insurgent leaders were, yeah, they were reasonably powerful. But at the end of the day, I mean, we still had a lot more firepower than they did. So that wasn't that wasn't really much of a concern, to be honest. Now, where there was a little bit of fear was, okay, at the time I was a new interrogator. Yeah, I was just trying to get my feet wet. That's where I was finally cutting my teeth, as we say, doing the job for real. And sometimes you could get these guys to talk to you. Sometimes you couldn't. And in those cases where you weren't able to get a guy to talk or you were not able to extract the information, you know, the commanders on the ground needed to shoot the insurgents or to save American lives. I often went to bed wondering, okay, I failed to extract the information. Is some American soldier, sailor, Marine, cavalry, scout, whatever, going to lose their lives or lose their legs because I failed to do the job good enough? Even though my squad leader said, hey, you know, Reed, you did a good job, man. Just go with the guy again tomorrow. So that, that, that worry and that fear was always in the back of my head. And after a while, I had to learn to just compartmentalize my thoughts and not think about it too much. Uh, if I did, it would have drove me crazy. You also mentioned intelligence operator. You, you, you described it a little bit. Is that kind of like, like a spy kind of like you're, you're trying, you're trying to see what's happening here and there without being noticed? Sure. So on the, human intelligence side here's what it was for those of us in the conventional forces of the military some of it was pretty straightforward so when i got back from iraq i was allowed to attend a course called the source operations course the army runs at fort Huachuca. that's basically where they teach you tradecraft you know counter surveillance surveillance detection methodologies they basically teach you how to go into a foreign country meet people whether they're, you know, organized crime, insurgent leaders or criminals who have access to information that the U.S. military and policymakers in Washington, D.C. basically need to know to protect the country. And they train you to meet with those people, figure out what they're like, you know, what are their wants, their worries, their fears, what are their motivations for doing certain things. If you've got a... Uh, a terrorist leader in a foreign country and you meet with a guy in organized crime who really hates that terrorist leader and has a motivation of revenge you know you sit down you say hey man you really want to get you know douchebag over their back well hey i work for the americans maybe we can work together and make it happen and it's it's kind of an oversimplification but that that would be kind of what we would do whether that would be working out of an embassy or attached to a conventional unit where we go out and we greet civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have ways of looking for people who we think have access to information. We know, you know, Hey man, is your neighbor Abdul, is he the guy making those IEDs that are blowing our guys up? You know, then you find out, Oh yeah, he just happens to hate his neighbor because his neighbor shot one of his goats or something to that effect. And then you try to use that as a way to exploit and play on get the guy to work for us to give us the information we need. And where the, where the more tradecraft oriented stuff comes in 
is oftentimes when you're operating at a higher level, maybe in a foreign country where you're not in uniform, maybe you're in civilian clothes and you're out running operations where there are people out there looking to stop you from doing it. You know, other counterintelligence people who do sort of like what I did. I, other, other people in other countries are going to try to have their people who do what I do stop our guys from doing, you know, what they're also trying to do to us. So that's kind of the summation of the human intelligence side of things. Now, there's different layers of it. The really high level human intelligence operations, there's additional training courses you have to go through to be certified to do those. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Red Sparrow, uh, the Russian girl played by Jennifer Lawrence, she would be a, a more senior level source. You would have to be a graduate of a course like the field tradecraft course, which is what the CIA runs at Camp Perry, Virginia. And we call that the farm. And Joel Edgerton's character in the movie Red Sparrow would have been a graduate of that course for him to have actually run uh, in the movie, in the book, Dominika Egorova as his source. So that's kind of how the human intelligence side of things works. Okay, but that's how the human intelligence side works. How does the Russian intelligence, how, how, how does that work? Because we're right there in the, in the same ballpark. Oh, that is where things get interesting. So... They do a lot of the same stuff we do. The, the human intelligence operations they run, in terms of basic principle, they're not really that different. Um, and they're not necessarily better than us. We tend to run better long-term human intelligence operations because we play on long-term motivations, relationships, partnerships. The Russians, they're really, really big on doing things like threatening and blackmail. Okay, give you an example. So back during the Cold War, when we would have embassy employees, for example, on an airplane flying to the embassy in Moscow to go start their new job with the State Department or the Marine Guards going there to be part of the Marine Security Detachment, they might be on a plane. It'd be an aeroflot, you know, a Russian airline, obviously. And some smoking hot Russian chick would just sit beside them. And they usually did this little trick here if they thought the American subject was married. That hot Russian chick would plant a big kiss on the guy's mouth, grab his crotch, and then take his hand and put his hand on one of her breasts. And then one of the stewardesses who's working for the Russian intel service, because pretty much all of them were, would take pictures of that. And what the Russians would try to do is say, oh, comrade, you don't want us to show picture to wife? Maybe you get this piece of information that we burn picture. What do you say? They try to do stuff like that. Or they do more more how shall i say insidious sexploitation they'll just try to get a guy in a bad position and they'll bring in a stripper or something who maybe is like an underage girl and they have proof she's underage and then they say hey if you don't work for us we're going to give this to you know your criminal investigation division or your fbi and get you thrown in jail you know that's the kind of thing the russians would do now that can work very well for a very short period of time but if a guy is being forced to betray his country and you're blackmailing him into doing it, he's going to hate your guts. And eventually that creates an opening for the other intelligence services to say, hey, you want to get those Russians back? We'll push all this other stuff aside. And then that allows us to go to that American who's being blackmailed and maybe give him disinformation to get with the Russians. OK, and the stuff kind of goes back and forth. So some basics, there's some 
basic rules and guidelines that stay the same, even though we kind of operate a little bit differently. Uh, give you a uh, give you a good example of how the Russians can play dirty when you really really piss them off. This is a this is a story not too many people have heard. So you might you might be too young to remember this, but back around 1984, uh, our CIA chief of station Bill Buckley was kidnapped in Beirut, Lebanon. He was a chief of station in Beirut, a former U.S. Marine officer, I believe. Was friends with President Reagan, if I'm not mistaken. And the people who kidnapped him were a splinter group from Hezbollah, you know, one of the terrorist groups there in Lebanon. And right, yeah, they they demanded that we pay a ransom. And President Reagan was afraid they'd kill him, so he told the CIA and the State Department just pay the damn ransom. So they paid the ransom, and they dropped his you know shot up mutilated corpse outside of our embassy. Took the money and said, "Ha ha." Well, about the same time, this splinter group from Hezbollah kidnapped a Russian diplomat. And they went bragging about it on CNN and a few television channels and then talking about how the Russians were godless heathens for what they were doing in Afghanistan. And when that CNN broadcast aired, it just so happened that a senior Russian KGB official named Vladimir Kroichkov was watching the television and saw that put his vodka down, and let's just say he was not in a very happy mood. He was not a happy camper. So he called in the deputy head of the Russian GRU, his underlings in the KGB, and he says, these guys think they can kidnap one of our diplomats and get away with it. We're going to show them what happens when they do that. So they sent some of their Spetsnaz goons down there to Beirut to try to teach this guy a lesson. Well, the guy in question was one of the uh, mullahs who worked one of the religious leaders of Hezbollah. They knew where his mosque was, but they couldn't nail down where the guy was because this particular mullah had spent half his life dodging the Israelis, so he was really, really hard to track. Well, this mullah had a brother-in-law. So the Russians kidnapped his brother-in-law, killed him, sawed his head off, cut his balls off, put his head and his balls in a burlap sack, and they dropped it outside the doorstep to his mosque. When the moolah bad guy comes up and undoes the, you know, the burlap sack, he sees the testicles and severed head of his brother-in-law. And there's a note driven to his forehead with a brass nail that has Russian KGB sword and shield lettering on it. And in Cyrillic Russian letters and Arabic, it says, give us our diplomat back and don't you ever threaten us again. Needless to say, the Russians soon had their diplomat back and the Iranians made a formal apology saying, oh, we should keep these guys under control. We're really sorry, guys. Please don't get mad at us because the, the Iranians and the Russians didn't always get along. The Russians threatened to nuke them at one point in time. So that was that was how the Russians dealt with that particular issue. And I've I've seen them work in other places overseas. Uh, there are certain things they're really good at, like subversion. Um, I can talk a little bit about that if you want. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, okay. I, I I just want to say something real quick. You mentioned, sure. you know, about the the Russians and and basically they're there for exploitation and blackmail. That's how their intelligence service works versus the U.S., which is kind of like we're going to do anything to get information, yada yada yada. So they're 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 pretty much to the point of if you don't do this, I'm going to send all these pictures to everybody in the whole entire world if you don't do what I say. That reminds me of um, a show that, that was on Netflix. I, I can't think of the name of it, but there was an episode in particular where 
the president of the United States gets word that his people are trapped in a foreign country. And in order for him to get them back, he has to have sex with a live pig on live national television. Black Mirror? Black Mirror. That's it. (laughs) And I wonder, is that kind of the same situation where where you could be stuck in? If if you're versed in one of those, you know, other country. I don't even know. I don't even know how to question that. But 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 obviously you saw it. You saw the Black Mirror. You knew what it was. Does that seem like something that could possibly happen or does it seem like a legit situation, even though it was a fake story? Well, the whole screw in the pig thing, I don't see that happening. The Russians wouldn't waste time on that. Um, if they were going to do something like that, they'd be demanding some piece of information in return or they'd be demanding an avenue to allow them to engage in long-term subversion, which when you think of you know, spy operations, you look at the Russian intelligence services at least back in the Cold War, the majority of their budget didn't go to intelligence collection or even the blackmailing we were talking about. It mostly went to long-term subversion. Uh, I can't go into too much detail. I saw, I saw the Russians engage in this sort of thing in parts of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. And boy, were they good at it. They really, they kind of sometimes had us in a bit of a pickle. But example, um, Back in the 1970s, we were trying to do a crash program to replace uh, our fossil fuels for electricity generation with nuclear power plants. Uh, Other Western countries would probably have followed suit. The only country that was successful in that regard was France. The reason the U.S., Canada, and Germany failed so horribly in trying to build our nuclear power infrastructure, you had the anti-nuclear weapons, anti-nuclear power movement, but there were large chunks of that movement that were Russian subversion operations, possibly with Russian sleeper cells. Um, So basically, yeah, their subversion was so effective within the U.S. and the West that they shut down the nuclear power movement. Now, the reason they did that is the only export the Russians could make money off of in the Cold War was exported oil and gas, which a lot of Western countries bought. Had we built out our nuclear power structure in Japan, uh, Canada, the U.S., and Germany, that could have been a, economically a crippling blow to them. So they used long-term subversion sleeper agents like you see on that show, The Americans. That's how they fanned the flames of it. And so when we realized what they'd done, it was kind of like an electric shock to the balls for the intelligence community and the national security establishment of the United States. And so President Reagan comes into power in 1981 and the decision is made, we're going to bring the Russians to their freaking knees. And the way we did it was pretty simple. So there was a major conventional military buildup to make sure that if we went to war against them, that we could defeat them conventionally in Europe without having to resort to nukes. That was part one. Two was a Star Wars defense. There were other purposes for that. But The next big step that doesn't get talked about a lot is is the Reagan administration worked with the Saudis to crash oil prices. That brought oil and gas prices way down the U.S., helped us get our economy going a lot faster. But by crashing the oil prices, we financially crippled the Soviet Union such that by 1987, they were more or less on their knees just trying to pretend that they weren't. And... That's what helped speed up their collapse and just brought the whole structure crashing down. So 
there's how you see the, the Russian subversion operation, but then our strategic retaliation against that brought them right to their knees. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a lot about spies, and I, I want to know, when I, when, I, when I picture a spy, I, I think, honestly, J uh, James Bond. That's who I think of when I think of a spy. So spies and military versus like a, like a, I guess a governmental British spy like James Bond, what are kind of comp compare and contrast the two? So you see James Bond always driving around in sports cars with hot chicks, you know, Mercedes, BMWs, Porsches, Bugattis, whatever, always in a suit and tie, you know, martini shaking, not stirred, wax a bunch of people. For the spies, that's not how it is. All that stuff will draw a lot of attention to you and make you stand out, okay? A better example would be, let's see, will be a good, let's say that I'm working in a country like, we'll say Romania, just, you know, for argument's sake, we'll say we're in Romania. And we know the Russians have an embassy there. And we have a list of all the embassy employees. We know who the military attache is. And we know they have access to information we want. So if I'm the spy, what I might do is just go hang out at some of the bars, elicit information, get to talking to the guy, get him a little drunk and see maybe he starts talking trash about his boss. I said, oh, man, you really don't like Colonel Yuri Gromov, do you, Sasha? Oh, man, that sucks. You maybe try to befriend the guy for a while. It takes time. And then you find out. He's got a wife who's suffering and needs surgery that he can't get in Russia, but can only get in the West. And when you find that out, that's when you sit down and you maybe make what we call, you know, a pitch. Say, hey, man, this is who I am. I can get your wife surgery in the U.S. This is what I need you to do for me. And you hate your boss anyway, right? And if he agrees to work, that goes up in report. I take that back to the, you know, the boss, whether that's an army colonel who's working for the DIA or if you're CIA, it'll be the chief of station. I say, okay, we're going to give you permission to run this guy. And then I maybe tell, you know, Sasha, Captain Sasha, whatever. I say, okay, from now on, here's where we're going to meet. If anybody asks while you're <clears throat> meeting me in this casino or whatever, here's what you tell them. Okay. And maybe we set up some embassy functions where we say, hey, we're going to invite all military officers uh, from different embassies at this big party. Then he has a reason to be at the party. Then I tell him, hey, when you go into the men's room, I want you to take the packet information on that, you know, whatever, that new Russian jet fighter. I want you to stick it up in the rafters and, you know, take a pencil and make a little X mark on it. Okay, it's amateur stuff. This is an idea of the trade craft. Okay, then I go in the men's room, pick it up. I walk out, stuff it in my shirt, and then I bring back to the embassy blueprints to a Russian jet fighter. Very oversimplification, but that's a more realistic version of how it might work versus all the, a lot of the nonsense you see in the James Bond movies. Right. And you mentioned something that, I, that I've always been interested in and didn't think about until you mentioned it when you were like, uh, you know, um, if you give me this information, I can find your wife's surgery in America. Now, let's just say this particular person gives you the information that you need that leads you to X, Y, Z, wherever that leads you. The guy that gave you the information, is there any luck in getting, getting what you told him 
would happen if he told you happened, or are you just kind of just saying that kind of like feeding the feeding the intuitive mind? Like, does that ever happen? I don't know if so, that question is making sense. Well, so when usually in situations like that, if we tell what we call a source, we're going to do something for you. We bend over backwards to do it. Okay. Um, we're not a bunch of shysters like some people say when they, if people are going to risk their lives to bring us information, you're taught whatever your spy school is, whether it's the field tradecraft course, one of the more advanced defense courses or source operations course. If you tell a source you're going to do something, one, make sure it's something you can actually get done. And then if it is two, you bend over backwards to make it happen because you may want the guy to continue to provide you information. And if right. you don't do what you said you were going to do, that source is going to dry up and you got to go explain to, you know, maybe a captain, a colonel or someone in Washington, D.C. why you screwed this thing up and your career isn't going to be on too good of a track after that. Right. Cool, man. So as we kind of wind down here, I got a couple more questions for you. Um, here's kind of a fun one and we'll end on a very uh, kind of a more serious note. All the military films and movies that has been released throughout the entirety of, of, of movie making, in your opinion, because you mentioned you're an historian, you, you obviously know the military like the back of your like the back of your hand. What is the most accurate military film that has ever been released or that you have at least seen? There's actually a few okay. that would fall into that category. Um, as far as realistic depiction of Marine Corps boot camp, it's Full Metal Jacket, ah, okay. bar none. Uh, they had a real Marine DI on there. I've had that experience. And the Marine Corps, they do some sadistic stuff at boot camp, but there's a reason for it. And there's, you know, the reason why uh, when you've done four years, the Marine Corps, if you go into any other branch of service, you don't ever have to do their basic training again because the Marine Corps is recognized throughout the military as being good for life. So there's that. Now, Saving Private Ryan, very realistic combat depictions, which Hollywood movies are getting a lot better about that now. They bring a lot more veterans on as advisors. Uh, another great one was Fury. There's some great depictions in there of how uh, armor-piercing shells actually work, where they use uh, what we call the Monroe effect, a shape charge. When I was in the Marine Corps, I was an anti-tank assault man, so blowing up tanks with missiles was my specialty, so I had to know how these things work. But if you watch some of the scenes in the movie Fury, when they hit those German Tiger tanks with armor-piercing shells or the Sherman gets hit, you see what looks like a jet of lava shoot mm -hmm. through the tank. That's because a shaped charge focuses the, uh, the explosive force into a tiny area about the size of a big quarter or maybe a small nickel and blows right through the tank and it melts the tank armor as it goes through. We call that the chunky salsa effect. And it looks like a high-speed lava jet that just blows that molten stuff through and just causes all hell to break loose inside the tank. The actual tank won't blow up. So the scenes in the movie Fury for those are pretty damn realistic. And then the, you know, the machine gun fire with the tracers going all over the place and you see what look like little bitty laser different colored laser bolts going through the air those are called tracers there's usually one of those for every five bullets on average every three or five so the amount of you know tracers you see multiply that times three or sometimes five that's how many bullets they can tell how many bullets are actually in the air 
and the way it shows it, you know, making a snapping sound as it goes over your head, because most bulls are supersonic. They actually break the sound barrier as they go through the air. So those are pretty, uh, pretty realistic. And then uh, the movie Gladiator had some realistic scenes in it when it showed how the Roman legions were actually arrayed in battle. The, the armor, you know, all the stuff that they wore, the weaponry was pretty accurate. The tactical setups were accurate. Um, they did a pretty good job on that. And so there are, there are, there actually are a lot of, uh, a lot of good movies out there. And then my, you know, my years of experience in the military and in the intelligence community obviously gave me, you know, different, different, maybe more accurate perspectives on those things. Mm -hmm. And then it also helped me make a, put a lot of good material into the, uh, you know, the books that I wrote. For example, uh, one of my most recent books was called The Time Killers, and it's a military sci-fi time travel thriller about a group of military intelligence operatives who are Gen Xers like me, and they have to go back in time starting in the year 2027 after a war between the U.S. and China. They have to go back in time to the late 80s, early 90s around Houston to basically assassinate four people to stop the aftermath of a future war between the U.S. and China. And they got a lot of stuff in there. It's like kind of like Stranger Things, the late 80s, early 90s, music, fashion, culture, put some really good graphic love scenes in there. But I had to actually submit that book to the Department of Defense to get it cleared for publication. And when I submitted it to them almost a year and a half ago, I thought for sure they were going to redact like at least four or five pages worth of the material that I had. But turns out, they did not redact any of it. The Pentagon looked at it. Um, I believe they may have had the Department of Energy and the Air Force OSI folks at uh, one of our military installations in the Southwest, I may or may not have mentioned, that uh, they looked at it and then it came back and said, hey, you're clear to go ahead and publish it. And I've got one other book, I wrote another draft manuscript, actually not an actual book that I've sent to them for publication approval. So that book, that book's actually doing pretty good. And I've also got a, I actually got a counterterrorism thread that's also out called In the Death of Night 2.0. It's gotten some really, really good reviews. And all my years in the Marine Corps, the Army, and the intelligence community, those experiences made it so easy for me to write those books because in a lot of cases, I could just sit down and write. I didn't necessarily have to think, okay, how is this guy going to Pull some counter surveillance techniques here. Oh, I know exactly how to do this. And I just type it up. So those, you know, those experiences uh, did quite a bit for me. Last question for you, Matt, um, or Matthew, which, whichever you like to be called. Um, could there, and this, this could be an open question. So could there ever be a World War III? If so, what could possibly start this World War III? Now, I know that's an open-ended question because anything could, could start it, but in your mind, from what you've researched, could there ever be one? And if so, what could start this? Come down to a number of things. I mean, it definitely could happen. So first, we'll start with the one that everyone's probably thinking about right now, the war in the Ukraine. So. When we think about World War III, it may not necessarily be a mass nuclear exchange like we envisioned in the Cold War. 
it may be a series of blunders and engagements, probably like the first Peloponnesian War between the Spartans and the Athenians. It kind of, nobody really planned for it to be a big war. They each thought they had it in the bag and they each made miscalculations. So right now, the Russian intelligence services are the ones pulling the strings. Okay, Putin's not really that much in charge. The Russian security services run that country and they're running the war. And in spite of the fact that they seem to be losing and conventionally, yeah, in conventional since they are you know, getting their ass handed to them here and there, to achieve some of their strategic objectives, they don't necessarily have to win and occupy Ukraine, though they would like to. So all they have to do is do what they've done, which is wreck Ukraine's agriculture and destroy their import and export terminals in their port areas. Okay, Ukraine's a major breadbasket, one of the biggest breadbaskets on the planet. They're a massive exporter of fertilizer products, wheat and grain. Okay, and the countries and parts of the world that are heavily, heavily dependent on those grain and food exports are in parts of the Middle East and all throughout Africa. So by destroying and wrecking Ukraine's agriculture and infrastructure, the Russian intel services hope to cause mass famine in parts of the Middle East, Turkey, and Africa. What that'll do is cause a lot of those countries to collapse into famine and civil war. Now, this is if nothing else changes. Unless something changes, here's what's liable to happen. They'll collapse those countries through famine and civil war. It'll drive tens of millions of refugees from Africa and parts of the Middle East right into the heart of Europe. Okay. Now, aside from the obvious chaos that causes, okay, financial strain, probably fighting wars and insurgencies on European soil, either the Europeans get overrun by those tens of millions of Muslim and African migrants and they capitulate, okay, which knocks, knocks out about half of NATO, which obviously Russia would like. The other option is, is that the other possibility is the right-wing parties in Europe come back really, really hard and then they strip off the later hose and put on the jackboots and they do what Europeans are good at and they basically turn them all into air pollution. Where that also becomes an issue is that a lot of the members of the right-wing parties in parts of Europe like France and Germany are pro-Russian and pro-Putin. So the Russian intel services know exactly what they're doing there. So that could be a part of it. And how in the world we get into that, if that World War III you know, kickoff scenario goes down, depends on how involved we want to get or if we want to pull out and say, screw it. Other possibility is like the Peloponnesian War between the Athenians and the Spartans, we get more heavily involved in the Ukraine to bleed the Russians, okay? And there's an argument to be made for that. It's not an illogical way to pursue it. Where we would have to be worried and be careful is some of the biggest and most devastating wars in history are not started through calculation. They're started through miscalculation. And if we make a wrong move and miscalculate when Putin's threatening to use nukes, that could very easily spiral out of control and end in some kind of a limited nuclear exchange. That's one possibility. Other place it could start would obviously be the Formosa Strait with Taiwan and China. And on the surface, it looks like China could just crush Taiwan. But remember, Taiwan's been prepared for a war with China for decades. The open-ended question is, can we be certain that the Taiwanese do not have their own nuclear weapons squirreled away somewhere? 
Now, let's say for argument's sake, the Chinese attack Taiwan, they crush them and they're successful. And that scenario was actually mentioned in my book, The Time Killers, about how that might play out. But let's say the Chinese are successful. They cross Formosa, they crush Taiwan. The second those first Chinese Marines boots hit the deck on Taiwan, you can bet South Korea and Japan are going to start building their own nuclear weapons, and they're going to get them built fast and point them right at China. What happens then? So you see it's not like one big 24-hour nuclear exchange like in the Cold War, and it's over. You know, like movies like The Day After Tomorrow. It could be a series of slow burns where the various powers make miscalculations and it creates a chain of events that spirals out of control. That would be kind of the general path that I see things taking if it were to be a World War III scenario. Now, in the case of China, we have a lot of options to kick them in the balls or bring them to their knees, unbeknownst to most people. So China gets the vast majority of its oil from the Persian Gulf, right? It's 6,000 miles from the Persian Gulf to China. Most of China's naval vessels, according to uh, geopolitical analyst Peter Zihan, he's a, great, he's a great guy to talk to, by the way. I highly suggest you seek out Peter Zihan and interview him. He's a great guy to interview. Uh, his analysis shows most of China's naval vessels cannot sail more than 1,000 miles. So all we would have to do is basically sink and blockade and embargo all the Chinese oil and gas tankers coming out of the Persian Gulf and we've cut off most of their oil and a big chunk of their energy. And then right south of China, near the South China Sea, you have a place called the Straits of Malacca. And here's how I think this might go down. So China has to import vast amounts of raw materials to make the finished products they then have to export to get people to buy, right? Pretty simple. Well, most of what China imports and exports has to go through a place, again, called the Straits of Malacca. It's just a, it's a, it's a sea lane, but it's narrow and bottlenecked, and it's dotted with island archipelagos. If you look at this from an infantryman's perspective, it's nothing but ambush and choke points. And if you notice, the United States Marine Corps is getting rid of all of its artillery systems for their infantry units, and they're replacing them with long-range anti-ship missiles. And they're going to break the Marine battalions up into company-sized elements. What I think the Marine Corps is thinking about doing if there's a war with China is plopping platoon and company-sized elements all along those islands that make up the our archipelago that surrounds the Straits of Malacca to sink all of China's shipping and basically choke off and constrict their main artery where they have to import raw materials and then export finished product. You do that and you maintain the blockade long enough, you basically kill China. That's how I think that'll go down. Man, that's a lot of information to <laughs> to <laughs> to take in. Um, but man, it's crazy to think there's there's a lot of stuff you think you know as just an outsider looking in. You think just because you watch CNN, you watch CBS, you you, you look at social media, you think you have everything figured out until you actually look inside the lines and you realize, oh, there's a whole hell of a lot more going on than, 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 than I'm even close to being aware of, you know? Well, sure. I'll give, I'll give you an example. Um, 
you and your listeners will find this interesting. And I, 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 I uh, rolled up this little bit of history into the first novel I wrote. So during the Second World War, uh, we had a serious espionage problem on American soil. The Germans and Italians had dozens of what were then called espionage cells all along Chicago, the Northeast, and the waterfront. Because they knew in the event of a war with America, we'd be sending all of our men and material out and shipping out through those northeastern or you know, eastern seaboard shipping ports. And when we declared war on Germany, British intelligence said, hey, there are hundreds of these espionage cells all along the eastern seaboard that are there to sabotage your refineries and your ports and your shipyards. And we were like, well, shit, how do we, how do we find these guys? Well, here's what we did. A group of naval intelligence officers got together with J. Edgar Hoover, the old FBI director, and they did something extremely ruthless and very ingenious. They cut a back alley deal with the mafia, with La Cosa Nostra, with guys like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Sam Giancana. They said, look, guys, we're going to call a truce between you guys and the FBI. They said, you guys can run all your organized crime operations. We will leave you alone, do whatever you want to do. All you have to do for us is guarantee the security of our ports and refineries, which they could do because the unions work those shipyards and who controlled the unions, the mob. They said, guarantee the security of those areas. And then we're going we're to track down who the Italian and German spies are. And you're going to use mob hitmen to whack them and kill them. And the Italians, they got rid of pretty quick, pretty much every Italian foreign exchange student that was living around Jersey and New York. When they went to work at whatever restaurant or pizza parlor they were working at, the mob showed up and said, hey, that kid from Italy, if you don't want us to torture your restaurant, you have him in the back alley and we're going to bash his head in and shoot him in the back of the head, kill him, whatever. And they take his body into Hudson River or wherever and get rid of it. Mm. And that deal we made also created a vast human intelligence network for us on the island of Sicily because everybody in Sicily worked and was related to someone in the mob. So we knew when the Germans were going to the bathroom, when they were eating chow. So we bombed, we bombed Sicily. We bombed the German dining facilities when we knew most of the soldiers would be in there, as an example. Mm -hmm. And that human intelligence network the mob helped us set up is one of the reasons our invasion of Sicily was such a stunning success. So that was so effective that by 1943, the German Gestapo and the Italians would not allow their intel operatives to fly into a North American airport because they were dead 24 hours later. I mean, it was that effective. So I looked at that and I said, okay, I'm going to ramp it up a notch. So I wrote a book called In the Death of Night 2.0. It's about a retired CIA case officer running a private security firm in Houston, Texas, who manipulates and leverages a Russian organized crime syndicate and the slaughtering and killing Islamic terrorists all over Houston. The way he does it is pretty simple. His security firm has a contract to do what we call technical surveillance countermeasures work or bug sweeping. He has a contract to do that for the Houston police, Harris County, uh, Immigration Customs, FBI, ATF, all those guys. And while he's supposed to be sweeping for bugs and listing devices, he has his people plant the devices they're supposed to be you know, listening for and sweeping mm. for. Mm -hmm. and so he goes to the Russian mob and he says, look, I can tell you if, when, how, why, and where the cops and the feds are going to move on you way in advance on one condition. I got all this surveillance data on known or suspected Islamic terrorists living in and around Houston 
who are here to target our refining infrastructure here in the Gulf Coast in the event of a war. I'll keep the information on the cops and the feds coming. You just have all your ex Spetsnaz, GRU, Stasi enforcers, and hitmen kill these guys and butcher them like hogs, make it nasty and violent wherever it costs you to kill them. I spot you for in cold, hard cash, unmarked bills from an offshore bank account my firm owns. And the Russians are not really able to turn the deal down because they've just had a lot of their, you know, racketeering operations raided by the Houston police and the FBI. And so that's kind of what the, the crux of that particular book is about. And this being CIA case officer is a man named Bill Carpenter, one of the main characters in some of the other books. But uh, that deal he does in, in The Death of Night 2.0 very closely reflects how we actually did business in World War II. And some big kind of nefarious deals like that, or, or say Project Paperclip, where we brought back Nazi scientists from World War II, a lot of that stuff is not conspiracy theory. I mean, it really does go on. And in defense of the intelligence community, we oftentimes do have good reasons for doing it, whether it's counterterrorism or maybe trying to counter something like nuclear weapons trafficking. Uh, these are the types of things that you know do go on behind the scenes for various good and bad reasons. And uh, you read my books, you'll certainly get a little bit of a window into how some of these things are actually done and what some of the reasons are. But you're right, there's, there's always so much more going on. What you see on the news, in some cases, either outright BS, or if you do get a piece of truthful information, it's just a small piece of what's really going on. It's like the tip of an iceberg. You're seeing the, a piece of the surface of the iceberg, mm -hmm. but what's underneath it? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matthew, look, man, we've been going for an hour. I've got plenty more questions to ask you. So I want to get you back on here the next couple of months. Sure. I'm going to keep my questions fresh. And I, 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 I want to talk to you again. If, if you're cool with that, because I have, I feel we could talk all day about these things just because I'm so curious about different things. And obviously you, 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 you know, your stuff, uh, but uh, man, I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Can they get your books on Amazon? Where, where can they find your books? I should ask that. Well, sure. It's real simple. I just go on to Amazon, you know, amazon.com, amazon.canada, whatever, and just type in the titles of one of my books in my name. The best way would be to type in one of my more recent books. So just go into amazon.com and a little search queue, select books, and just type in The Time Killers by Matthew Reed. Pull that book up and then click on my name. There's a little picture there with me in a black leather jacket and black sunglasses. Click on my name and it'll show you all the books I've written. You can click on and buy any of them anytime. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, brother. Like I said, we're going to get you back on, but, uh, but uh, th thanks for your time. And, and, and I hope my questions did you well. I hope the podcast did you well. It did brother. I sincerely appreciate you having me on. The pleasure is all mine. Whenever you want to have me back, just shoot me an email. All right, man. You have a good one. You do the same yep. brother. Take care. God bless. You know, Dano Seasoning is changing the world one table at a time by offering the best all-natural low-sodium seasoning products on the market. 
Dano's goals are to provide you with real flavors to make healthier food choices without ever having to sacrifice the real taste. Dano's includes low sodium, which is only 50 milligrams per serving. It has all natural unrefined sea salt. There's no sugar, no MSG, no chemicals, and it's completely gluten-free. Also, there's 100% natural ingredients. Dano's seasoning is the most versatile seasoning on the market. Grill, smoke, bake, create soups, sauces, marinades. You can also sprinkle Dano's on your eggs, your potatoes, maybe some pizza, maybe some pasta, and even while you're watching a movie, sprinkle some Dano's on popcorn. Heck, if you're crazy, why don't you put some Dano's on ice cream? Any food that exists, you can put some Dano's on it. Go to danoseasoning.com, use my promo code HodgePodge, capital H and a capital P, and HodgePodge. Guys, remember to do that. Um, just like the spelling of the podcast, a capital H and a capital P in HodgePodge. You can try all three flavors, which include original, spicy, and hot chipotle right now today. It's damn good. Yum, yum. Get you some. We are sponsored by Raise Energy. Powered by the enhanced refresh technology, Raise Energy delivers with a performance-enhancing energy drink that aids in the most often overlooked categories. Raise Energy targets focus, enhances your recovery time, improves clean energy levels, and boosts your stamina and hydration. Most importantly, each single can of Raise Energy has absolutely zero calories, zero sugar, and zero carbohydrates, which that gives you a smarter and more healthier option. You should not have to settle for an energy drink that contains more sugar and carbs than you can count. Opt for the number one fan-voted energy drink on the market today with Raise Energy. If you want to get yourself a can of Raise Energy, go to repsports.com, R-E-P-P, sports.com. Use my promo code HPP1000, HPP1000 at checkout, and you will receive a generous discount. (laughs) 